This is Erased. I'm Colette Bauer-Zinn. And this is Lisa Johnson. Two Black moms bonded by bluntness, tenacity, and an unwavering commitment to creating communities of support. Every Thursday, we're exploring where the intersections of education, race, and culture collide, dissecting interracial issues to help you navigate and thrive, despite being marginalized. Welcome to another episode of Erased. I'm your co-host, Lisa Johnson, and I'm sitting here next to the lovely Colette Bowersen. Yes, ma'am. We are so happy you've decided to join us once again. Today, we are having an interesting conversation with someone who I just learned has some dirt. On my co-host. Oh, stop it. (laughs) I'm going to let her introduce our guest so we can get to that dirt. All right, let's do it. We have a very exciting guest today, so let's jump right on in. The private school world was set on fire this spring when The Atlantic published a cover story entitled, Private Schools Are Indefensible. Written by our guest today, Caitlin Flanagan. Her piece, as The Atlantic characterizes it, describes the obscene gulf between how rich kids and poor kids are educated in America. And Flanagan herself concludes that in a just society, there wouldn't be a need for these expensive schools or for private wealth to subsidize something as fundamental as an education. In a just society, an education wouldn't be a luxury item. So there will be plenty to talk about today with our guest, Caitlin Flanagan. Caitlin is a writer for The Atlantic, is a former staff writer for The New Yorker, and author of two books, To Hell With All That and Girl Land. She's tackled a wide range of subjects, including college admissions, adolescence, sexuality, and culture wars, and her essays have been widely anthologized in the Best American Essays, Best American Travel Writing, and Best American Magazine Writing Series. She was a finalist for the 2019 Pulitzer Prize and won a National Magazine Award for reviews and criticism. As we'll talk about with her before becoming a writer, she was an English teacher and college counselor at Harvard Westlake School, Mm -hmm. my alma mater. And Harvard Westlake Mm -hmm. School is an independent school in Los Angeles. So let's get to it. No, no, no. Let's just go back to that and and really um, dive deeper into the stories that you might have, Caitlin. First of all, welcome for joining us. But please, you guys Thank have you. a little Thank bit of a history at Harvard Westlake. We have a history, and I want to say something really quickly before we jump in. Caitlin Flanagan Uh-oh. was one of few women that I connected with that were working at Harvard Westlake at the time that I was there. And when mm-hmm. I tell you that these women were the dopest, are the dopest <laughs> women when it comes to just mm-hmm. being strong academics and just all around oh. badass chicks. <laughs> I that learned so, so nice. much from these people. See, she's trying to Caitlin, get. She's trying to so. steer you away from sharing the dirt. I'm not. I'm <laughs> okay, not. it's not dirt. It was a compliment. I had just been saying before we went on the air that Colette was very, you know, uh, obviously higher ed. She's all about it. And the year that she was applying to college, she would show up to school so early, and she and I was a college counselor, and she would sit in the hallway outside, like before we got there, and. <laughs> She would often be in her short shorts, and all of a sudden, every boy in the school decided that it was time to really get serious about college, and um, in fact, waiting in the hallway might be a better way to even do it than getting into your own counselor's office, so, and here's the real insider baseball, Uh Colette. Uh-oh. There was a time when your compatriot in this would be Jessica Capshaw, lovely yes, Jessica Capshaw. Yes, she was yes. daughter. 
Your mother was so much more of a celebrity than Steven Spielberg, and it would be like, Ravita's daughter is there. They've got to do it right. That's so it was like you were, you were, and remain LA royalty for many yep. reasons. Awesome. Yep. Thank well, you. Before Thank we you. dive into Caitlin's thoughts on where private schools should go from here, we always like to kick things off, Caitlin, by asking our guests, when was the last time you felt erased? And by that, we mean diminished and not seen or heard. Just quickly, the last time where you felt. I might say there's a whole whole lot of people in the school world that want to erase you right now exactly i can take it um i've had cancer for a long time a really long time and i've had really serious treatment for cancer and there have definitely been times where all of the kind of cultural capital that a white woman doesn't even realize that she's carrying around with her when you have no hair and when you're not dressed up and when you're not giving those signifiers that maybe you didn't even realize was part of the cultural landscape of America, yeah. you suddenly become erased. And, um, and I had written about my cancer that year, which I'd never written about it before. And then they found out I had cancer, like, oh, you can't come on this show. Now they were protecting me because it was COVID and they didn't have everything oh. figured out yet. But it was sort of like, I wish I hadn't even revealed that. You right. know, I wish I'd kept it private. Oh. So, wow. Yeah. wow, the mic drop on that. The mic drop on that. I, you know, I, I can resonate just a little bit. I mean, this pales in comparison, but at one point I cut all of my hair off into a natural, so very short hair. And I grew up in Atlanta, Georgia, where it's all about hair. And I just, and I was much younger and I just remember the difference in treatment from people just based off of the length of my hair. It's crazy. Let's be clear. It, it was probably the length of your hair, but also like people and their reactions to natural hair. That too. Back then. But I thought it was more to her point about the fact that I didn't necessarily feel like I was demonstrating like the societal image of what Amen. a woman should look like. And I felt that difference, Amen. which was a great exercise for me because I realized I am not my hair. Malcolm Gladwell has that great term. He calls it thin slicing. And that it, it's it's kind of gets onto perhaps implicit bias or many other things, but it's just as human beings, like we'll just see some, we'll look up, we're at a Starbucks, we'll look up and we'll just see someone and we thin we think we know everything. You know, we just slot yes. them into these categories. Yes. You know, oh, that's the kind of that kind of person, or Meh, she's so fancy, whatever it is, we have just thin sliced them probably very inaccurately. And now any exchange that you have with that person, they unknowingly are having to undo your assumptions. Yeah. So it's just, um, it's an interesting time to think about all these, these things that we don't even realize we carry around with us. So let's get at it, Caitlin. Let's, start, right. let's start with all the right. Why'd you write this story? Why now? Okay, my editor-in-chief, Jeff Goldberg, um, he had wanted me to write a big piece about private schools for a long time. It was to be a big reported cover story, and I'm really not that kind of a reporter where you kind of snoop around and get people talking. It's, to me, that idea of sort of sitting with someone, letting them feel comfortable with me, not reminding them every five minutes that I don't, pro I don't necessarily have your best interest at heart. Right. You know, mm -hmm. I have the truth at heart. So that's always been hard for me. And then when there were the protests, it was just like this pot of water that had been boiling and boiling and people kept turning it down and people kept turning it down, which was the truth about private schools. Mm -hmm. And with the protests, it, the flame got turned up really high. And then I could say, even though that's just one section of the essay, I said, okay, the through line here is money and assumptions mm -hmm. and treatment of kids and the understanding that 
these aren't adults, you know. You're putting kids under a really huge strain that you're not acknowledging. You seem to have known it all along because every head in the country was like, yeah, we've been systematically racist. And I thought, really? You're the headmaster? You've known this and you've done nothing about it? So it was sort of like a final truth telling. And I thought, okay, something's moving now. I can put all that together. Well, and the added nuance is, of course, your background in private schools. You've had a career in Mm -hmm. private schools. So that that just is the icing on the cake. And in the beginning, I was so naive. I didn't understand anything. I thought the board was kind of like a school board in a public school context. I had no idea how much money was directly connected to treatment of individual students Mm -hmm. and how much there was like a huge operation in the school to get as much money as possible, often for very good things that we all want. Mm -hmm. Number one, more financial aid dollars, which every one of these schools could do a lot better on that. And then I started to really think about what's it like to be a kid here? And maybe what's it like to not be the billionaire kid? So is, you know? is there something to the title change? So when you originally published, it was private schools are indefensible. And now online, when we look, it's private schools have been truly obscene. Can you tell us a little bit about the change? Uh, more insider baseball. I hate the title of the cover. I went to war against it. The pe- the title of the piece was Private School Hell the whole time I wrote ah. it. Private school hell. <laughs> like the wealthiest people think they're in hell because there's something they're not getting that they should be getting. And then, you know, kids who are different in some way, it is a hellish experience. Faculty pushed around by these wealthy parents as though they're employees. Everyone's in their own private hell of their own making. And then, you know, having sent my own kids, you know, I was really upset at one point about how much homework they were getting. And I was like, well, you're the idiot. You're the one who's paying for this homework. You know, you should enjoy it so that they're doing it. But the night before these pieces drop online, they'll do this test market of different titles in different communities. And one of them was private schools have become obscene. And that was far and away the one that people wanted to read. So that's why it has the two different titles. So tell us about the reactions to your piece. So here's one we found. Uh, (laughs) What distinguishes Flanagan's story from yet another roast of America's ruling elite is her own background. She was a private school teacher and a private school parent, and her experience with private education runs deep enough that she always treats her human subjects with a degree of empathy otherwise not afforded Mm -hmm. to the institutions she condemns. Flanagan's Mm -hmm. view is nuanced though she clearly isn't afraid to antagonize. And that was actually a student, a senior, that oh. that wrote that review of the wow. piece. So talk to nice. us about the different reactions that, that you were experiencing. Well, everybody, I think, was really happy the truth was told. You know, I got things from independent school parents who said, you know, these are things that have troubled me all along. Oh, I got some really powerful pieces from kids who had, one was a a guy who's just graduating from Lawrenceville. He said, this is going to change my life. Mm. I know it, but it's been hell. Mm. I just got everybody from across the spectrum sort of saying something's gone wrong here, but these elite colleges are still in the service of these elite schools. It's really wrong. You know, why is Brown taking 30% of their students from the richest schools in the country? What's going on in terms of equity? What's going on in terms of the values that those colleges always espouse? You know, Princeton last summer came out and the president said, we must confess that we have, I mean, slave owners went to that school. So obviously we have a history, but he admitted it's not a resolved history. He admitted systemic racism persists. So if you admit that, why would you keep taking so many 
wealthy kids from these elite schools. And I think most of all are in our economy where it is a winner-take-all economy. You know, when I grew up in California, there was a middle class and it was not just a white middle class. There was a black middle class. There were great union jobs in California. There was the idea that you could go to high school even if you didn't get a higher education, you could get a career-long job and have a good salary. And we lost all of that. And we're getting in this world where you either have quite a lot or dramatically very little. Right. And the schools perpetuate that. So, devil's advocate. Please. We're a capitalist country. Are private schools going away? I mean, what, what do we do? What's the solution here? Well, it's one of those things, I don't think there is a solution, but there's a, t a chance for self-exploration by the schools because their stated values are not matching their practices right. still in many ways. I completely agree. We're a free country. God love us. You know, you can get all kinds of things if you have enough money, if it's legal, you know. And there's certainly people who, for very legitimate reasons that don't have anything to do with elite education, they don't want their kids educated by the state let alone which particular school it is, they say, I want to do this at home or I want right. to do it in a religious context. You know, there's a lot of reasons that people go to non-public schools that I certainly completely applaud. Right. You know, I went to a super radical school district, that big famous integration, first school district in the United States to integrate without a court order and, you know, getting bust and all that. And a very robust black history program started in fourth grade um, when I was bust down. And wow. It was not a program that was made to help little white girls from the hills feel comfortable. And that was a good thing, you know. Yeah. So it was eye-opening in every way, in ways that I don't think parents today would ever allow. Which explains and a lot, right? you are living proof of the <laughs> yes. fact that if we stop apologizing for revisionist history and tell it like it mm -hmm. is, that we can produce human beings such as yourself yeah. Yeah. who navigate the world in such a unique wonderful way. It had a profound effect on every single one of us, both black and white, but there were many people, especially the black, now men, you know, my age, that they had thought the whole world was like Berkeley. They had thought that everywhere they went, there would be respect for their culture, for their identity, mm. that nobody would question that we're studying. You know, I have lots of friends who, they know Swahili to this day, you know, little white middle-aged ladies, you know, at Whole Foods, they know Swahili because they went to Berkeley High. So I think it's more that if the schools have really taken up this mantle of going from, you know, 50 years ago, your white son went on to take his grandfather's seat on the New York Stock Exchange with his C minuses. If, they, if they've really gone from that to institutions that very explicitly talk about the issues of a just society and issues of equity, if they're really going to do that, they're going to have to do a lot more than they're currently doing. Mm -hmm. And I think it's right for students and concerned families to hold their feet to the fire on that. Amen. I just, I, I feel like one's not going to do it unless they all do it. And I wonder where that mm -hmm. public pressure, I mean, pieces of work like yours are definitely a great starting point, but that public pressure is going to be everything. Those two women, if you've talked to them, one's a student, but one's an alumna at Chapin who started the Black Act campaign. Mm -hmm. It was such a brilliant campaign because it was so sticky. The middle the minute you looked at it, oh, I'll do that for my private school. I'll do that for my private school. And when you had that many people telling the same story over and over, suddenly there was no way for the NIS schools to ignore it. Right. There was just no way. It was too overwhelming. I don't think they're necessarily doing the right thing thing at the moment. This is a big change. This is like a oh, 150 degree change. And they don't really know what to do yet. 
But so we're kind of all standing back and see what, what's going to come out of it. So they don't really know what to be doing. In your humble opinion, what should they be doing at this moment? Well, I'm sure this academic year of 20 to 21, it's going to be a case study in ed schools for decades. Amen. You know, there's two things like, okay, oh, we're going to have our entire educational system is going to be online. And then everybody's kind of struggling with the tail end of the Trump administration, whatever. So that has tensions up. And then during that, there's the killing in Minneapolis. Mm -hmm. And the reason I admire the hell out of these kids with the Black Ed campaign is like, well, the, everything about the protests were like, you had to stand back as a, as a white person um, and say, <laughs> everybody was ready. It was like the school kids were ready to say what was going on, being black at a private school. These kids were ready. It was like everyone was prepared. And and so these students got together and it was powerful. And so critical race theory is sort of coming into this moment and saying, we break with the, the way that the history of the country has always been told in that we think that by sharing our personal story, our personal experience, our personal truth, we don't need to get 5,000 people to sign off that that's correct. People will hear our experience and say, that happened to me too. So we're trying to figure out where are we going to go with this? Caitlin, in the article, you touch upon the experience of black students in private schools. And, and that's our experience. It's our children's experience. It's, it's a choice many of us make with all of its complexity. And you highlight that more than 50% of low-income black students at elite colleges attended top private schools. And that, and I'm quoting, to summon education, this is a cause for celebration. The old route to social and professional success has within it some dedicated lanes for black children from low-income families. To others, it's a cause for concern. If these children want to attend elite college, their best bet by far is to spend their adolescence in a school where the experience of being black is, for many, a painful one. And this is exactly the conundrum that many parents of color face when deciding whether or not to send their children to private schools. So we're in these spaces. Should we stay? Boy, you know, <laughs> I, I really have to question, after reading for hours so deeply into all the different Black Act campaigns, I think those New England boarding schools, I think there needs to be almost a flag on the field. The things that I read that weren't just from the historical past of the 50s or 60s, they get taken out to a rural area. Mm -hmm. And this one kid last year was skateboarding home to his campus and some rednecks in a car followed him slowly all the way to school. I think the thing that everyone on this issue needs to think about is these black students have more to offer the schools than the schools have to offer them. And if you're gonna get someone like that, a talented young black kid willing yes. to come to your boarding school, how are you gonna protect his psychology? How are you gonna protect his experience? How is he gonna have the same level of ownership of this place? Mm -hmm. And I think in so many ways, that kid feels very alienated yep. on the other side. Just like anybody who goes to that school, he is gonna have an education unlike any other. He's gonna be able to step into a pre-med program at Princeton and he'll be way ahead. Even the top kids at the public schools, they don't have this level of curriculum. They can't get their way through that much coursework before they even show up at a Princeton. You'll have you know. an unparalleled network. Yes. I agree with you fully. I, I've said many a times, mm -hmm. in these schools, we are the gift. And we need to start navigating as such and ask the schools to meet us 
as such. So touching on the black kids in these schools, in these spaces, what's the social contract between the black student and family in the schools? What's the social contract? Okay, so here's what I think, you know, in the first sort of 20 years of of these private schools kind of starting to realize we need black students here, it was just about getting them in and getting them in and getting them in. And then in the last 20 years, it's been more about, well, what are we doing to them when we get them here? You know, Mm -hmm. it's been about the psychology of it. But I think it's right to remain unembarrassedly and boldly a presence. There is the assumption, oh, every black kid at a school like that, they're on full financial aid. Oh, yeah, that's, that's not the true. Worst. Yeah. Yeah. And there's an assumption that they're going to get an unfair step into college. Yeah. There's an assumption they're all there great at sports yeah. and that that's why they're there. And if they're not great at sports, then it's a disappointment. There's always an assumption that academically they're less able. Yep. So many times. I mean, this is 25 years ago, but I was always like, I wish I could show her that kid's transcript and she would shut her right up because that kid's head and shoulders above her little poindexter. So let's move on from that idea. (laughs) But the main one, and this is going to be a painful thing to say and hear. The main one is to this day, a non-black parent and oftentimes an Asian American parent looks at any black kid and thinks he's lucky to be here. Yep. He could be on full tuition. He could be the best kid in his physics class. He could be everything. But there's that, oh, isn't that nice? Yep. He got to come here too. Kids who come to private schools, they come from, you guys know, they come from strong families. They have mothers who are like, okay, we're going to do this. And I, my eyes are wide open to it, you know? And so they have a huge amount of support from home. But when you're a kid, you're not home for those eight hours. You're just not home. And it's like you said, the people of color, black students, et cetera, come from a spectrum of family backgrounds. My my family's very upper middle class. And still, these were things that I had to contend (laughs) with. Those were attitudes that I was faced with. I to this day I talk to my kids about the fact that when I was accepted into the Ivy League school that I wanted to go to, there was this young man in my class who without reservation, got in my face and said, you realize the only reason that you got in is because you were black. Totally diminished my accomplishments, my intelligence, my integrity, all that I had worked for, all that I am, in just one little silly phrase. And his assumptions that your grades and scores, which he didn't have in front of you, were not the equal of the other kids getting into Penn. And I'm going to tell you, they were above a lot of most of them that got in and that, you know, it was like... There were no gifts handed out there, and there right. are no gifts, but there's an assumption. Yep. Now, I have a lot of feelings on the other side of this debate, too. So I was just going to ask you about that. Like- <laughs> if there's one thing in this last year that I never want to hear another white American say is, but you're not judging me by the content of my character. It's like... <laughs> Martin Luther King did not risk his life for all of his life to drop this explosive new way of thinking about other human beings so that a rich white person could complain that they weren't being judged. They're being judged by the color of their skin. I think, you know, you can take it. But the other side of this is, oh, I've seen some terrible, terrible, terrible things done to curriculum this year. I don't know if it's going to get repaired. I don't know if it's just because of the urgency. But Certainly, I would feel the same if somebody had a history curriculum that wasn't really dealing with slavery. I would say that's a useless 11th grade history. You're not telling the whole story. Mm. And it is true that America is only an idea. You know, it is only an idea and it is fragile. It And if we take it apart, 
you know, we can do it, but we cannot rebuild it at that point. So I think that what I see is an overcorrection in a lot of these schools were like, yeah, we hate America and you hate America and America's horrible. And I'm like, wait a minute, some of you guys are billionaires who have certainly done very well in this country. Right. So what do you mean? You, you know, you do, you, is that just your chic attitude? I think right now, hating America is a luxury we can't really afford anymore. Agreed. And Obama said it so well when he came to the Democratic Convention and you could see a weariness in that man. You know, it's the end of Trump and it is after George Floyd. And he had to stand up for the system. And he so he talked about all the terrible things in our history and in our present. And then he said, but for all of it, we've had a North Star. And that's the Constitution. So, yes, it was written by slave owners. It was written by people we wouldn't let in our house for a second. But it is a product of the Enlightenment, and the Enlightenment is what gave us freedom. And we have to get into figuring out job number one is creating a middle class again. Yeah. So I do now love America despite and everything. Although Obama in the memoir, you know, that first paragraph, he says, I'm not yet ready to give up on America. Now, that's an American president saying I'm on the verge of giving up on it. Yeah. So, I think a lot of us feel that way. You know what, can I ask you about the black parent in particular? We, we constantly have this conversation about helping parents feel empowered and engaged and, and stepping into the private school experience knowing they are the gift. I'm curious to know your thoughts on how we help families realize walking in the door that healthy line, particularly because you acknowledge you've seen an ugly side of, I think you called it parent power. And I feel like that whole notion hinders a parent's desire to even speak up and show up. Mm -hmm. Like you don't want to be the problem parent. And you know that administrators feel that way. So you don't show up that way. When really our kids can be suffering in silence if we don't show up mm -hmm. more like that. Well, first thing I will say to the black parent and the white teacher, let's make that paradigm. And this is not anything wrong with the teacher. It's only a good thing about them because most teachers are progressives. They are terrified of a black parent coming in and saying that somehow they failed the child and it's on a racial grounds. They are so afraid of that that it's a hard thing to talk about. You know, it's talked about a lot now, but there's no way that people can talk openly about it. You know, a white teacher at, a, at an independent school overwhelmingly is a strong Democratic voter has strong feelings about social justice. A lot of them are people who plan to be public school teachers. They do have a real commitment, and they're working for less money than a public school teacher. So I would just say you have a lot of power because teachers really are concerned about this. And it's like if you just take a beat and give them a chance, especially young teachers are terrified of it, you will get much faster response to what you really want by excuse me taking a beat and giving a chance they're afraid they're afraid i mean maybe there's some really older teachers in the south who've been forever but today's crop at the peer institutions these young people they are progressives you know and the mama in bear in me wants to be like that is not my problem and i don't want to take a beat and but give it, you it, space but when you it's my it. children's but the key word she said right. is fear Fear perpetuates fear, right, on both sides. And so it's such it's such a hindrance to the progress, which I think speaks to your point of take a beat. If you go in with a really clear idea 
I had a, an, a parent just tell me two weeks ago, dad's white, mom's black. And a very senior administrator said to the daughter, oh, I'm so glad you're here. I saw your name. I knew you'd be a great addition. Thanks for being here. And the parents say, did you sign up? And the daughter's like, no, she means someone else. She had the whole conversation with the parents, with the daughter. The daughter doesn't even bother to correct at this point. If that's not a kind of heavy burden that you're at an exquisite school and they don't know who you are because you're one of the black girls, that's a real problem. So I would say big problems, big administrators, small problems, the teacher. You know? And I would say in, in that moment, like, I don't care if you're scared. I'm, I'm not going to say it in any rude type of way, but I'm going to be like, oh, you have the wrong child. And oh, if, definitely. That, if that incites fear in you, that's on you, not me. That is totally what I'm saying, a specific, clear request, yeah. because it's like I wrote in the piece about these white parents who just ground me down to a nothingness over a grade. And from then on, I, of course, told everybody, try do whatever you can not to get that kid. That mom is horrible. You know, if if they feel <laughs> that way, that's how they will respond. I don't need to talk about them as like these teachers as though they're like infants or anything. They're brilliant people. They're great educators. But on the teacher level, you know, you always give, unless it's egregious, I think you give them a chance and just very clearly say, this is not acceptable. Yeah. You know, his name is this. He needs to be called that. And the last thing he needs to be called is some other black kid's name. Amen. Can you and I work on that? Do you get that? That's, that's what you do. I just think it's, it's, I, it's a perspective that I certainly had not considered that I believe is accurate. I mean, I, I will say based on my career, my life as a human being and as a mother with children in private school, I am absolutely over the fact that I have put an exorbitant amount of time and energy into making myself palatable so that people I'm not don't saying do that fear. No, no, no. And I'm not saying do that. I'm saying just be aware. So, I've been aware. Yeah. And, and what I'm saying but to see, you I, is having had the lived experience, both working in schools and having children in schools is that it's a lose-lose. So no matter if I come in exceedingly soft and say in a lovely voice. So then what's your recourse what if you feel like it's a lose-lose? So that's why I am a direct human being that, that, that says what needs to be said mm -hmm. and in ways that it can be heard, not to alienate folks, but to be direct and leave your reaction with you. That's what I mean in terms of the losers. I am no longer concerned with how it is received or your fear or whatever. I am concerned with, as Caitlin said, um, saying what I need to say in a direct manner that can be heard and how you receive it is your issue. I'm going to stay mm -hmm. on top of what you do about it. Right. I'm not but gonna... if that hurts your feelings, if it triggers mama issues yep. in you, if it makes you feel insecure, I am no longer willing to bear the burden of that responsibility. Oh, see, and I wouldn't bear that burden. I, I totally agree with everything you're saying. For me, I just had not considered just knowing that this per the person's perspective of being afraid. That's all I'm saying. Just being aware of that. Not to say that it has any bearing on me taking that on or any bearing of so how So you're saying that sitting right here right now, this is the first time you've considered that people are afraid of us as black parents no, in schools? No, me, when me, we... me. I'm thinking of myself, my personal experience. Oh, that's hilarious. I know. Girl. <laughs> you know, because I'm little old Lisa. Then you have had I'm a little... luxury as a black woman. <laughs> I'm little old Lisa. Girl. 
Sorry, Caitlin, can we, <laughs> I, what is the real issue here and how should schools be reconciling their mission and existence in a way that truly embraces DEI while also countering these reactions that we're seeing from folks who are very privately and off the record stating how they feel? Well, a couple of things. At the highest level, the intellectual underpinning of the curriculum needs to be discussed by faculty at top schools. There's far too many people who aren't teachers of English coming in and saying what to do. You know, you can tell teachers of English, we need to have a diverse list of authors. Sure, mm -hmm. great. But then it's on the teachers. They know what they're doing. And I think this whole thing about critical race theory, it needs to be a discussion, a very open discussion. And are we going to say that we as a school no longer support enlightenment values? But the real problem is money. You know, I remember every year they'd have the party for the parents who gave a lot of money and they'd be setting up for it in the middle school and the kids would be going to school and you see all the, you know, nice glassware being wheeled in and then you're like, oh, what's that? And it's a parent party. Oh, my parents didn't get invited. Oh, it's just for the ones who gave the, over $5,000. I mean, that's got to stop. There'll never be equity as long as parents of enrolled children are allowed to give huge donations because... No matter what anybody says, if you've given a huge donation, I mean, there's just a human nature. If we all, like, say we had some uncle who just like, didn't have any kids and had a man of means and he would send us a big birthday present of cash every year, and then someday he's like, hey, I need a favor. We're like, yes, you are my favorite uncle. What do you need? You know, <laughs> so that happens a lot, but it can be on the minor level of a teacher selection or whatever, but... I would say disciplinary outcomes can be different based on that issue. Yeah. And I think people are right to look on the issue of how black students may have different disciplinary results. I would say even more important, it's how much is an individual's contribution by their child a certain amount of bad behavior. Yeah. Because that's bad for everyone. That rich kid is going to go into society and have this kind of values that brought our economy down in 2008 because he knows he doesn't have to be responsible. And then the other kids, they're, you know, middle class, so they do have to follow the rules or whatever. And middle class for them at that school could be millions. When they see that it's being flouted by the administration, then they're like, these rules are meaningless and I'm not going to follow them. Right. So I think it's all about... And yet the outcome is very different when they decide they don't want to follow the rules. Yeah, totally. I, I just totally. love the fact that you allude to this whole notion that private schools, colleges, and universities, like in theory, if they're top educational institutions, should be admitting, you know, the students with the lowest test scores and turning them into educated leaders as opposed to, you know, the wealthy... Oh, that Students. is a whole nother conversation. It is, but if you're really talking about being an equitable and, and top educational institution, you know, how far do you go to reconcile that way? That's season three. <laughs> <laughs> a huge, huge, huge thanks to you, Caitlin Flanagan, for coming on. I love it. For, I love it. For taking my messaging and immediately agreeing to come on. I'm so excited. Coming from you, that meant the world. You have given us so, so much to think about and a whole lot of homework for ourselves and our schools. And so many ideas for additional topics. I was taking notes. Right. You guys will have 30 seasons. Yeah, it's never <laughs> exactly. Know, but I love what you said, Colette, and I would just say that to every parent. The burden isn't on you to be extra sensitive because of their racial feelings. You know, Correct. 
Correct. That's not it. But it is also to be pragmatic, to be aware yes. that you have a big voice and a big presence because they're very particularly now concerned about doing the right thing. Yes. And so use it wisely, you know, in some respects, that's, that's the perfect thing. That's fully agree with you on that. Caitlin, thank you again. Tune in in two weeks for the next episode of Erased. Remember to rate and review us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and all other podcast platforms. You can also comment on our social media platforms. We love that as well. Learn more at erasedpodcast.com or again on Instagram or Facebook at Erased Podcast. And subscribe, subscribe, subscribe. Erased with a C. I'm your co-host, Lisa Johnson, in partnership, as always, with the lovely Colette Bowersen. Thanks for downloading and listening, as always, and we will see you again in two weeks.